Section 15 of Selections of the History of the Franks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Selections of the History of the Franks by Gregory of Tours. Translated by Ernest Briotts. Book 10, Chapters 1 to 14. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, here begins the tenth book. Chapter 1. In the fifteenth year of King Hildebert, our deacon returned from Rome with relics of the saints, and related that in the ninth month of the previous year, the river Tiber so flooded the city of Rome that ancient temples were destroyed, and the storehouses of the church were overturned, and several thousand measures of wheat in them were lost. A multitude of snakes, among them a great serpent like a big log, passed down into the sea by the channel of this river, but these creatures were smothered among the rough and salty waves of the sea, and cast up on the shore. Immediately after came the plague which they call Inguinaria, footnote, affecting the groin, Inguen, the bubonic plague, and a footnote. It came in the middle of the eleventh month, and according to what is read in the prophet Ezekiel, quote, begin at my sanctuary, end quote, it first of all smote the Pope Pelagius, and soon killed him. Upon his death, a great mortality among the people followed from this disease. But since the Church of God could not be without a head, all the people chose Gregory the deacon. He belonged to one of the first senatorial families, and from his youth was devoted to God, and with his own means had established six monasteries in Sicily, and a seventh within the Roman walls, and giving to these such an amount of land as would suffice to furnish their daily food, he sold the rest and all the furniture of his house, and distributed the money among the poor, and he who had been used to appear in the city arrayed in silken robes and glittering jewels, was now clad in cheap garments, and he devoted himself to the service of the Lord's altar, and was assigned as seventh Levite to aid the Pope. And such was his abstinence in food, his sleeplessness in prayer, his determination in fasting, that his stomach was weakened, and he could scarcely stand upright. He was so versed in grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, that he was believed second to none in the city. He strove earnestly to avoid this high office for fear that a certain pride at attaining the honor might sweep him back into the worldly vanities he had rejected. And so he sent a letter to the Emperor Mauritius, whose son he had taken from the Holy Font, adjuring him and entreating him with many prayers never to grant his consent to the people to raise him to this place of honor. But Germanus, prefect of Rome, forestalled the messenger and had him arrested and the letter destroyed, and himself sent to the emperor the choice which the people had made. And the emperor, on account of his friendship with the deacon, thanked God that he had found a place of honor and sent his command to appoint him. Because of the plague, Gregory makes an address to the people of Rome to meet it by prayer. When he spoke these words, bands of clergy gathered, and he bade them sing psalms for three days and pray for God's mercy. 
Every three hours, choirs of singers came to the church, crying through the streets of the city, Kyrie eleison. Our deacon, who was there, said that in the space of one hour, while the people uttered cries of supplication to the Lord, eighty fell to the ground and died. But the bishop did not cease to urge the people not to cease from prayer. It was from Gregory, while he was still deacon, that our deacon received the relics of the saints, as we have said. And when Gregory was making ready to go to a hiding place, he was seized and brought by force to the church of the blessed Apostle Peter, and there he was consecrated to the duties of bishop and made pope of the city. Our deacon did not leave until Gregory returned from the port to become bishop, and he saw his ordination with his own eyes. Chapter 2 Grippo returned from the Emperor Maurice and reported that in the preceding year he and his companions had taken ship and landed at an African port and gone on to Carthage the Great. While they were remaining there, awaiting the orders of the prefect who was in the city as to how they were to reach the emperor's presence, one of the men belonging to Evansius, who had gone out with him, snatched an article of value from a trader's hand and took it to their lodging. The owner of the article followed him and demanded his property back. But the man put him off, and the quarrel grew greater from day to day, and one day the trader met the man on the street and took hold of his clothes and held fast, saying, I'll never let you go until you return to my possession what you took by violence. But the other, after trying to shake him off, did not hesitate to snatch his sword and kill the fellow, and he at once returned to the lodging, but did not disclose to his comrades what had happened. Now, as I have said, the legates were Bodies Eagle, son of Mumolinus of Soissons, and Ivansius, son of Dynamius of Arles, and this Grippo, a Frank, and they had arisen from dinner and retired to rest and sleep. But when the act of their man was reported to the ruler of the city, he gathered soldiers and all the people put on their armor, and he sent them to their lodging. But the legates were amazed on being wakened to see what was going on, having had no expectation of it. Then the leader cried out, saying, Lay your arms aside and come out to us, that we may peaceably learn how the homicide happened. On hearing this, they were alarmed, as they did not yet know what had happened, and they asked for a pledge so that they could go out safely without arms. The men swore that they could, but their hastiness did not allow them to keep their oath. But soon after Body's eagle went out, they killed him with a sword, and likewise Ivansius. And when they lay before the door of the lodging, Grippo seized his armor and went out to them with the man he had with him, saying, we do not know what has happened, and behold, here are the comrades of my journey who were sent to the emperor, lying slain by the sword. God will avenge our wrong, and will atone for their death by your destruction, since you butcher us in this way, when we do not harm you, but come in peace. There shall not be peace any longer between our kings and your emperor. It was for peace we came, and to bring aid to your state. Today... I call God to witness that it is your crime that has caused the promised peace to be kept no longer between the princes. When Grippo had spoken these words, and more to the same effect, 
This Carthaginian troop dispersed and each returned to his home. The prefect went to Grippo and attempted to calm him as to these occurrences and arranged for his going to the presence of the emperor. He went and told the business on which he had been sent and described the fate of his comrades. At this the emperor was greatly annoyed and promised to avenge their death in accordance with the judgment King Hildebert should give. Then Grippo received gifts from the emperor and returned without being molested. Chapter 3 These matters were related by Grippo to King Hildebert, who at once commanded his army to march into Italy and sent twenty dukes to conquer the Lombards. I have not thought it necessary to set their names down here in order. But Duke Audewald with Vintrio set the people of Champagne on the march, and when he came to the city of Metz, which is on the way, he plundered, slew, and mistreated the inhabitants in such a manner that it might have been thought that he was leading an army against his own country. Moreover, the other dukes did the same with their phalanxes, and ravaged their own country and the people who remained behind, before they won any victory over the enemy. When they reached the Italian boundary, Audevald, with six dukes, invaded the right side and reached the city of Milan, and there they pitched their camp at a distance on the plain. And Duke Olo went rashly to Bellinzona, a stronghold of the city, situated on the plains called Canini, and was wounded with a dart under the nipple, and fell and died. Moreover, when they went out to plunder in order to get food, they were slain by the Lombards who rushed upon them everywhere. There was a lake in the territory of Milan called Ceresium, footnote, Lugano, and a footnote, out of which a small but deep stream flowed. Upon the shore of this lake, they heard that the Lombards were encamped. They came to it, but before they could cross the stream we have mentioned, one of the Lombards standing on the shore, armed with a coat of mail and helmet, and carrying a lance in his hand, shouted against the army of the Franks, saying, Today it shall appear to whom the divinity will grant a victory. It may be understood that the Lombards had arranged this as a sign. Then a few crossed and fought this Lombard and slew him. And behold, the whole army of the Lombards took to flight. Our men crossed the river, but found none of them, seeing only the camp arrangements where they had their fires and pitched their tents. And when they could capture none of them, they returned to their own camp, and there the emperor's legates came to them bringing the news that an army was at hand to help them, and saying, After three days we will come with it, and this shall be a sign for you, when you see the houses of this village which is on the mountain burn with fire and the smoke rising up to heaven, be assured that we are close at hand with the army which we promised. However, they waited according to agreement six days and saw none of them come. And Cadinus, with thirteen dukes, entered Italy on the left and took five strongholds and exacted oaths of fealty. But dysentery affected his armies severely because the air was new to his men, and disagreed with them, and many died of it. But when the wind rose, and it rained, and the air began to freshen a little, it brought health in place of sickness. Why more? For about three months they wandered through Italy without accomplishing anything, or being able to take vengeance on their enemies, 
since they were shut up in strongholds, or to capture the king and take vengeance on him, since he was shut up within the walls of Pavia, and then the army sickened, as we have said, because of the unhealthfulness of the air, and grew weak from hunger, and prepared to return home after exacting oaths of fidelity, and subjecting to the king's rule the people of the country, which his father had held before, and from which they took captives and other booty. And returning thus, they were so starved that they sold their armor and clothing to buy food before they came to their native place. Chapter 4 Maurice caused the Carthaginians who had killed King Hildebert's legates in the previous year to be bound and loaded with chains, and sent them to Hildebert's presence, twelve in number, under these conditions that if he wished to put them to death, he should have permission, or if he would allow them to be ransomed, he should receive three hundred gold pieces for each, and be content, and thus he was to choose whichever he wished, that the disagreement might be more readily forgotten, and no further cause of enmity arise between them. But King Hildebert refused to accept the bound men, and said, It is uncertain in my mind whether these men you bring are the homicides or others, perhaps slaves of somebody or other, whereas our men who were killed in your country were freeborn. Grippo, in particular, who had been legate at the time with the men who were killed, was present and said, The prefect of the city, with two or three thousand men whom he had gathered, made an attack on us and killed my comrades, and I would have perished with them if I hadn't been able to make a brave defense. I can go to the place and identify the men, it is these that your emperor ought to punish, if, as you say, he proposes to keep peace with our master. And so the king decided to send to the emperor for the guilty men, and he bade these depart. Chapter 5 In these days Huppa, who had once been King Hilperic's constable, made an inroad into the territory of Tours, and decided to take flocks and other property as if he were taking booty. But the inhabitants had warning, and a multitude gathered and began to pursue him. He lost his plunder, and two of his men were killed. He escaped with nothing, and two other men were captured, and there was sent in fetters to King Hildebert. He ordered them to be thrown into prison, and examined as to who it was by whose aid Huppa escaped from being captured by his pursuers. They answered that it was through a stratagem of the vicar Animodus, who had the power of a judge in that district. At once the king sent a letter and ordered the count of the city to send him in chains to the king's presence, and if he should attempt resistance, he was to crush him by force and even kill him, if he wished to gain the king's favor. But Animodus made no resistance, but gave sureties, and went as he was told, and finding Flavi and the court official, he pleaded together with his companion and was not found guilty. They were acquitted and ordered to return home. However, he first gave presents to the court official. Huppa, a second time, roused some of his people and purposed to carry off the daughter of Badigisel, former bishop of Mans, to marry her. He made a night attack with a band of his companions on the village of Marais to fulfill his purpose, but Magnatrude, the mother of the girl and head of the household, had warning of him and his treachery. She went out against him with her slaves and repelled him by force, killing many of his men, 
and he did not come off without disgrace. Chapter 6. Miraculous Deliverance of Prisoners in a Jail in Auvergne. Chapter 7. In the same city, King Hildebert, most piously remitted all the tribute of the churches, as well as of the monasteries, and of the clergy who were attached to a church, and of whoever were engaged in cultivating the church land. For the collectors of the tribute had suffered great losses, since in the course of long time and succeeding generations, the estates had been divided into small parts, and the tribute could be collected only with difficulty, and Hildebert, by inspiration of God, directed that the trouble should be remedied, and the amount which was due to the fisc from these should not be exacted from the collectors, and that a rearage should not deprive any tiller of church land of his benefice. Chapter 8 Where the territories of Auvergne, Gévaudan, and Rouergue meet, a synod of bishops was held to hear the case against Tetradia, widow of Desiderius, from whom Count Eulalius claimed the property which she had taken with her when she fled from him. I think that I ought to relate this case in full detail, and how she left Eulalius and fled to Desiderius. Eulalius, as a young man will, had behaved in several matters in a senseless fashion, and so it came about that he was often reproached by his mother, and began to hate when he should have loved her. Now, she used frequently to devote herself to prayer in the oratory of her house, and to spend the watches of the night in prayer and tears, while her servants slept, and at last she was found strangled in the hair shirt in which she prayed. And though no one knew who had done this, nevertheless her son was charged with the murder. When Cautinus, Bishop of Clermont, heard of this, he excommunicated him. But when the citizens gathered with the bishop at the festival of the blessed martyr Julian, Eulalius threw himself at the feet of the bishop, complaining that he had been excommunicated without a hearing. Then the bishop permitted him to attend the service of the Mass with the others. But when the time for communion came, and Eulalius went forward to the altar, the bishop said, Come and talk among the people, declares that you are a murderer. Now I do not know whether you have done this crime or not. Therefore I leave it to the judgment of God and the blessed martyr Julian. You then, if you are fit to do so, as you say, approach and take a share of the Eucharist and put it in your mouth, for God will know your conscience. Eulalius received the Eucharist and had communion and departed. He had a wife, Titradia by name, noble on her mother's side, of low rank by her father. And in his house he took the maidservants for concubines and began to neglect his wife, and when he returned from these harlots, he would often beat her severely. Moreover, because of his many ill deeds, he contracted a number of debts, and often used his wife's jewels and gold for these. Finally, when his wife was in this hard situation, since she had lost all the honor she had in her husband's house, and he was gone to the king, Virus, this was the man's name, her husband's nephew, fell in love with her, and wished to marry her, since he had lost his wife. Virus, however, was afraid of his uncle's enmity, and sent the woman to Duke Desiderius with the intention of marrying her later on, 
and she took with her all her husband's substance, both in gold and silver and garments, and all she could take, together with her older son, but she left the younger son at home. Eulalius returned from his journey and learned what had happened. And when his grief was lessened, and he had taken a little rest, he rushed upon his nephew Virus and killed him in a narrow valley of Auvergne. And Desiderius, who had lately lost his wife, heard that Virus had been killed and married Tetradia. But Eulalius took a girl by force from the convent at Lyon and married her. But his concubines, impelled by envy, as some say, made her insane by evil arts. A long time after, Eulalius secretly attacked and killed Amerius, cousin of this girl. In like manner he killed Socrates, brother of his half-sister whom his father had had by a concubine. He committed also many other crimes, too many to tell. John, his son, who had gone off with his mother, ran away from Desiderius's house and went to Auvergne. An innocent being now a candidate for the bishopric of Rhodes, Eulalius sent a message to him that he could recover by innocent's aid the property that was rightfully his in the territory of the city. Innocent replied, If I receive one of your sons to make a cleric of, and to keep to help me, I will do what you ask. Eulalius sent the boy named John and received his property back. An innocent received the boy and shaved the hair of his head and put him in the care of the archdeacon of his church. And he became so abstemious that he ate barley instead of wheat, drank water instead of wine, used an ass instead of a horse, and wore the meanest garments. And so the bishops and leading men met, as we have said, at the confines of the cities mentioned, and Titradia was represented by Agin, and Eulalius appeared to speak against her. When Eulalius asked for the things she had taken from his home when she went to Desiderius, Tetradia was ordered to repay what she took fourfold, and the children that she had by Desiderius were declared illegitimate. They also directed that if she paid Eulalius what she was ordered to pay him, she would have the liberty of going to Auvergne and of enjoying without disturbance the property which had come to her from her father. This was done. Chapter 9. Gunthram sends an expedition against the Bretons, which proves a failure. Chapter 10. In the fifteenth year of King Hildebert, which is the twenty-ninth of Gunthram, while King Gunthram was hunting in the Vosges forest, he found traces of the killing of a buffalo. And when he harshly demanded of the keeper of the forest who had dared to do this in the king's forest, the keeper named Hundo, the king's chamberlain. Upon this he ordered Hundo to be arrested and taken to Chalon, loaded with chains. And when the two were confronted with each other in the king's presence, and Hundo said that he had never presumed to do what he was charged with, the king ordered a trial by battle. Then the chamberlain offered his nephew to engage in the fight in his place, and both appeared on the field. The youth hurled his lance at the keeper of the forest and pierced his foot, and he presently fell on his back. The youth then drew the sword which hung from his belt, but while he sought to cut his fallen adversary's throat, 
He himself received a dagger thrust in the belly. Both fell dead. Seeing this, Hundo started to run to St. Marcellus's church, but the king shouted to seize him before he touched the sacred threshold, and he was caught and tied to a stake and stoned. After this, the king was very penitent at having shown himself so headlong in anger as to kill hastily for a trifling guilt a man who was faithful and useful to him. Chapter 11 King Clothar is dangerously ill. Chapter 12 Ingetrude, abbess of a convent attached to St. Martin's Church, dies directing that her disobedient daughter should not even be allowed to pray at her tomb. Chapter 13 One of Gregory's priests is, quote, infected with the malignant poison of the Sadducean heresy, end quote. Footnote, denying the resurrection of the body. End of footnote. He is overcome in argument by Gregory. Chapter 14 Story of the drunken priest Theodolf, who falls off the wall of Angers and is killed. End of section 15